and I'm going to say the blessing for Torah study. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, source of life, who makes us holy with your mitzvot and has given us the mitzvah of engaging in words of Torah. So this week's Torah portion is again a double portion uh, because as I've explained in previous weeks, um, uh, during years that aren't leap years, several Torah portions are paired together. Uh, and this one is called Behar B'chukotai. Um, it was my daughter Timna's uh, portion, actually. Um, I guess that, yeah, it's a long time ago already. Um, and uh, it's the last two portions of the book of Leviticus. So um, as I mentioned last time, the book of Leviticus addresses the question of holiness. And I'll just mention this quickly again. On every, on different levels of experience, holiness of the human body, holiness and integrity, holiness of the human community, uh, holiness of time. That's what we looked at, how you sanctify time we looked at last time. Um, the holiness of in ancient Israel of the high priests and the special quality of holiness they had to manifest in order to be the intermediaries between God and the people. That's a big focus of Leviticus. And then in this, these last two portions, we address the holiness of all of creation and our responsibility to how we as human beings, how we must participate in maintaining the holiness of all creation rather than desecrating it, um, which is certainly never more relevant a subject than in our time when human beings have uh, reached the capacity not just to denude or, or, or um, uh, desert, desertify a section of the world in which they live, which has happened many times in human experience by deforestation or overuse or, and then humans have moved on while that part of the world over geological time recovers. But now we've reached the capacity where we're doing it to the entire planet at the same time. And so the idea of the sanctity and the desecration of all of creation is, may never have been more relevant in human history but the building blocks of it in our sacred texts are there to instruct us. Uh, and then it's our task, of course, to apply those insights uh, to um, our current situation. That's what Torah is for. Uh, so, so in these, Bahar B'chukotai, we deal with this largest sphere of holiness and the biggest system, as it were, because um, as we again now understand from 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 the emergence of ecology as a field of study over the last 50 years or so. Um, uh, any individual discrete form of study, uh, I'll have to catch that later, sorry. 
um, any individual discrete form of study, if you study it as itself unconnected to the other systems around it, you do not understand uh, the interconnection of all operating systems in, uh, in uh, God's creation. And so uh, the Torah sees them all, as I said last time, as nesting one in another, the integrity of the body, the community, time, space, nature, habitation, all interconnected. So, um, excuse me, got to find my notes. Good, okay. So what I want to do is look at um, uh, the very beginning of this Torah portion and kind of summarize to you what, what happens in these portions. Uh, so I'm going to ask Gwen to share the screen and put up the very beginning of our Torah portion this week. Excellent. Thank you. Hold on one second. Just a minor adjustment on my end. Okay, good. Can everybody see the screen with the text? Okay, Leviticus chapter 25 has this, oh, by the way, I have about four hours of things to talk about today at least. So let's see what, let's see where this goes. Like, to me, these, this is one of the most important sections of the Torah. It is in a way the climax of the book of Leviticus, but even more so. So let me show you why that is. And Yodhei spoke to Moshe at Mount Sinai saying, speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, when you enter the land that I am giving you, the land is to cease, a Sabbath ceasing to yud Hefafe, the shavta Haaretz, shavta. Our translator used the word cease. Shavta is the verb from which Shabbat comes from. So we understand this to be in English traditionally as a sabbatical. There shall be a sabbatical for the land, a Sabbath for the land where the land rests. For six years, you are to sow your field. For six years, you are to prune your vineyard. Then you are to gather in its produce. But in the seventh year, there shall be Shabbat Shabbaton, a Sabbath of Sabbaths for the land, a Shabbat Ladonai, a Sabbath, a ceasing, a resting for the land, for the creator, or, in, or called by the creator, or, you know, the, 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 um, the prefix in Hebrew can mean different things, the prepositions. Your field you are not to sow, and your vineyard you are not to prune. The aftergrowth of your harvest you are not to harvest. The grapes of your vines you are not to amass. A Sabbath of Sabbath ceasing shall there be for your land. Shabbat Shabbaton la arts. That's the way, again, remember when the Torah poetically restates a line, it's, it's the refrain, like in a song. 
Now, the, the, the Sabbath yield of your land. Um, Whatever the Sabbath yields from your land, that's for your eating. But only that which has, you cannot be cultivating it actively, nor claiming ownership of it. That food that the earth grows is for you for eating, but not just for you. It's for your servant and your handmaid, for your hired hand, and for the stranger who sojourns with you. And it's for your domestic animals. And it's for the wild beasts that are in the land. All of this produce is to eat for everyone. Today, the wild beasts are the bunnies uh, <laughs> in my garden. <laughs> um, but the idea is, not just your domesticated animals, but all wildlife is welcome to come and eat. Um, this is quite a vision, isn't it? Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this sabbatical, this sabbatical year vision. And by the way, you know, this is where the idea of the sabbatical year comes from, from the Torah. That's why it's called a sabbatical. And uh, um, fortunate academics and teachers, some, are able to actually take a year to renew themselves. It's a beautiful concept, isn't it? Uh, and again, forgive me if I'm repeating things you've heard many times, but seven is the number to remember that keeps us in balance with the cosmos. Six days of effort, a seventh day of restoring connection. Six years of effort, a seventh year to restore balance and appropriate right relationship. You know, that's the way the Torah sets up the balance between our, our human uh, nature and need to uh, inhabit, colonize, domesticate, that's how we flourish with our higher understanding that the earth doesn't belong to us, but that we have to do what we do somehow in concert with all of creation. If we fail to take our Sabbaths, then the earth, as the Torah says, will spit us out. Right, which is again true. It's not a supernatural being who is decreeing this. It is the uh, way the world is designed. It has to, we we species we humans, as the Torah teaches, who are called Adam, who are made out of the Adama, which means the earth have to understand our right relationship to the earth, even as we are a species who is given the ability and power to manipulate, control, domesticate, um, uh, exploit, all the things create, all the things that 
human species do that now we understand other species have capabilities of doing also, but not to the extent that humanity has uh, the ability to actually um, uh, transform our environment. Uh, so that's the passage. Um, and uh, there's a lot to say about it. And I'm going to say this much more before I ask uh, before I ask a kind of a good a good Torah study question. Um, later on verse 23, it will say, "You cannot buy or sell the land beyond reclaim, because the land is mine," says Yodhevavve. You are but residents upon it. Oh, okay, Gwen's going to scroll down to verse 23. Thank you, Gwen. But the land is not to be sold in harness, meaning perpetually, for the land is mine. You are sojourners and residents with me. Now that conclusion comes in after this first description of the sabbatical year, and then the description of every 50th year is called the Jubilee year. In the 50th year, any land called the Jubilee, any land that you might have acquired from, now again, picture an agrarian society that is fairly enclosed so that you know the neighbors, it's been their land for a couple generations, you know, this is the, this is a very agri, this is an um, agriculturally based uh, description. If they have gone in debt and have had to lease their land to you and become your workers in the interim of a 50 year period in the Torah, in the 50th year, they get to return to their landholding and restore their control over it. However, so that you do not own the land, the land belongs to God, but what you can own in this understanding of it, this ancient agrarian economy, you own the produce of the land. So for instance, if someone loses their land to you and then raises enough money to buy it back, they don't buy the land back from you. They buy the value of the produce of the land over the number of years that they've lost it. So in other words, the land cannot be sold or bought beyond reclaim. It does not belong to you. The land is mine. And so this fundamental understanding that human beings can't own the very substance out of which we are formed and that sustains us is a fundamental precept of the Torah. It belongs to the source of life. And I, you know, this ecological understanding of an indigenous land-based people that we were once is still waiting in our ancient texts for us to reclaim and honor. Um, just like I'm sure many of you have read other indigenous peoples, proclaiming the insanity of our idea of owning the earth. <laughs>
uh, so the Torah does the same. It's not just insane, it's impossible, right? It's a, it's a fiction that we create that leads to the desecration of creation. Um, so now let's go back. Well, not yet, not yet. I have to give you a little more framing. That's what this chapter describes. The next chapter, which we're not gonna look at closely today, describes what will happen to us if we do not let the land have its Sabbaths. And what will happen is a horrifying uh, description of the earth rejecting us, of us losing our source of food, us, us being constantly living in fear, um, of us being debased and degraded uh, because we have not let the earth restore itself on a regular basis. And so the next Parsha, Bechukotai, which describes this, is um, intense and uh, um, Okay, so now we'll go back to the beginning. Uh, let's go back to verse one, Gwen, thank you. Okay, so here's the fascinating thing. It says, yod spoke to Moshe at Mount Sinai saying, and this Parsha is called Behar, which means on the mountain or at the mountain. Um, the question that commentators have asked for ages is, why are they mentioning Mount Sinai here? There have been, there have been scores of instructions since the book of Exodus and the Ten Commandments, hundreds maybe, uh, laws and instructions and rules. Guess when the last time Mount Sinai was mentioned? It was at Mount Sinai. Um, so we haven't heard about Mount Sinai since, since the golden calf episode. In all this interim, Mount Sinai hasn't been mentioned. And so the rabbis ask, what does the sabbatical year, the Shemitah, which means release, this year of, of resting and releasing, what does that have to do with Mount Sinai? Why are we being why is Mount Sinai being invoked for this mitzvah, for th this sabbatical year mitzvah, when all the others aren't? Um, and in fact, this chapter and the next chapter form a literary unit. And at the end of chapter 26, when the, all the horrible things are described that's going to happen to us if we don't let the land rest, it says once again, and this is what God said at Mount Sinai to Moses. So why do you think? Anyone have any comments or, or thoughts about why Mount Sinai is invoked here? That's a good Torah question. Carol, were you raising your hand? No. Yes. Okay. Yes. No, no, I was saying that the way the rabbi was speaking is just what I, how I used to teach my students about the way the Native Americans look at 
the land. It's not, uh, you know, ours. Right. Well, I'll take a guess. We've got the other Carol than Enid than Wendy. Okay, we have Andy. a night. Oh, and Roni, you want to speak too? Yes, I'm going to take a stab. When do you see Roni? I see Roni. Okay, what's the order of speakers, Gwen? Carol, Enid, Wendy, Nancy, Roni. Okay, great. Carol. Okay. I'm just, it's just occurring to me that it's going to be Shavuos, and, um, and which takes us back to Mount Sinai, and then we have the additional Torah portion which I'm only aware of now because I've been, I've been working with it. But, um, but that's, that is what would make sense to me. So, so that maybe, maybe Shavuos just comes because it's time, or, or the, the reminder comes because it's time to remember or the, or the other way around. I don't know. But anyway. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, we're closing in on Shavuot of being at Mount Sinai again on the calendar. Who's next? Enid. Enid? I actually like what she said better than what I was thinking of, but um, I, I was thinking that it gives it a certain um, gravamen and resonance, a, a historicity, you know. This isn't something that just came up, but when he get, came down from, from Mount Sinai, when he gave, had the commandments, this is something that goes with it. So it's, it, it makes it very important Yes, thank you, thank you. Wendy? I was thinking that maybe um, they need the people to buy into the fact that they, that there's a larger reason for letting the land rest. The first time Moses brought the Ten Commandments down, the people were not bought into the idea and, and he got really angry and destroyed it and he had to go back up again. So maybe he's trying in this passage to get people to buy in so that they could provide the leadership to make it happen. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Okay, Roni withdrew her question. Was there anybody else, Gwen? Nancy. Nancy. I was thinking that getting that Moses is now preparing them to get ready to have to take responsibility for land that they're going to and as they're in in the in Shavuos they're he's now he's they're getting prepared that you're going to own this land and this is going to be your responsibility and I'm and, and I think I mean that's what I got well said well said thank you thank you Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to read a, a passage from Rabbi David Seidenberg, who's brilliant on this subject. Um, and Gwen, can you put it up? Yes, which one that you sent me? Shemitah, the purpose of Sinai. The first link I sent you. Um, I have them both open. One is, has a yellow background and one doesn't. Yellow. Can you see it? Yeah, can you make it larger? Uh, let me see. Uh, 
Mm, good. Uh, that's pretty good. Thank you. Okay. So let me read this to you. It's, uh, there we go. So Rabbi David Seidenberg is, uh, has written books about Kabbalah, Judaism, the environment. Uh, he's really a great thinker. And he quote, starts his thing by quoting his piece here by quoting the Midrash that says, why does Shemitah, the sabbatical year, have to do, what does Shemitah have to do with Mount Sinai? That's a typical way for rabbinic discourse to begin. What, what, what? What's this got to do with this? And it has been pondered over for centuries. The question arises from the way the portion about the sabbatical year is introduced in the Torah. Yodhei spoke to Moshe in Mount Sinai saying, speak to the children of Israel's children and say to them, when you come to the land which I give you, the land will rest a Shabbat for Adonai. In the seventh year, it will be the Sabbath of Sabbaths for the land, a Sabbath for Adonai, Yodhei If all the commandments were given at Mount Sinai, the Midrash wonders, why is Mount Sinai only mentioned here? Could you scroll down a little, Gwen? And now listen to this because it is deceptively simple. The answer that we can give today is deceptively simple. The whole purpose of the covenant at Sinai is to create a society that observed Shemitah, the sabbatical year. It is in a land where Shemitah is observed that human beings will learn to respect the earth herself by remembering that none of us can own her for the land is mine. God declares, and you are strangers and settlers with me. Keep it up there, Gwen, but I just want to emphasize what, what Rabbi Seidenberg just said, which is that maybe the whole um, goal, the whole aim of liberating the slaves from Egypt and restoring them to their land was so that they would create a society that lived in harmony with each other and with the land. And if none of us can own the land, cannot sell it and buy it, then what we do own is ultimately not ours. Then the difference between rich and poor is not just the way things are. Then a person cannot be owned and the difference between slave and master is not real and not loved by God. In the sabbatical year, debts are canceled. That we learn in another passage in Deuteronomy. The land is ownerless. In the seventh sabbatical year, called the Jubilee, all slaves are freed, including those who did not exercise their right to go free after the sixth year of their own service. And every family returns to Ahuzato, its original land holding, holding becoming equal to every other family. Only in such a society where property does not designate the right to use up what one owns, but rather a kind of fleeting relationship to what one cares for, can people learn the true meaning of justice. Only in such a society can people learn to share their wealth, nurture the poor alongside everyone else, relieve debts, end hunger, and respect the fundamental human right to be free. The sabbatical year was the guarantor and the ultimate fulfillment 
of the justice the Torah teaches us to practice in everyday life. And it was a justice that embraced not just fellow human beings, but the land and all life. The sabbatical year was the ultimate meaning of rest, which we practice every week in the observance of Shabbat. It was the Sabbath of Sabbaths, Shabbat Shabbaton. Um, if you want to read this whole essay, it's just one more page, and it's uh, it's great. So I'll let's take a link in the ch a chat. Oh, good. Yes, uh, Gwen's posting the link. <clears throat> okay, let's stop sharing the screen so we can all see each other better. That's great. Good. So. If seven is the cycle, and it is, through which we're instructed for how to live in this world, then we have to look at the ways the Sabbath and the sabbatical year, what their purpose is. And it's very clear from the Ten Commandments that the purpose of the Sabbath is to remember God's creation, Zecher Maasei Breshit, that we remember God's creation. And it also states in the Ten Commandments that it's the day when we let all anyone, including uh, domesticated animals who are under our control, we give up control for that day and let them rest. Why? Zecher Yitziat Mitzrayim, to remember that we were slaves in Egypt and we never want to recreate that reality again. Right. So the seven-day cycle, the seven-day cycle is to remind us that we are not in charge of creation of each other, even of the animals, beasts of burden that work for us. It's a profound concept that never gets, can be taught too much. It is the remedy, it's the antidote to the, the human nature to own, control, have, which is human nature, right? So we need a remedy, a remedy of both consciousness and enactment where we actively, consciously remember that we're not in charge and that we are creatures, not creator, that we are Adam from the Adama, we are emerged from the earth, that we are, we are the product of God's, of Mother Earth's, of creator's um, body, literally and not, and who would treat their mother that way, right? Um, so that's on the seven-day cycle. But that seven-day cycle gets recapitulated in the seven-year cycle, where it's when the sabbatical is described in the book of Exodus, because it's described in three different places in the Torah. It says, Six years, six years you shall sow your land, 
Oh, well, I have to read the sentence before it. I'm in Exodus chapter 23 right now. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. The next verse. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Let the needy among your people eat of it, and what they leave let the wild beasts eat. You shall do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. Six days you shall do work, but on the seventh day, so first it was six years, now on the seventh day you shall cease from labor. Why? In order that your ox and your ass may rest, and the people who labor under you, and the stranger who works for you, may be refreshed. And the Hebrew word is yinafash, may have their soul renewed. Uh, so the six years and the six days are explicit. Oh, thank you, Gwen. That's fantastic. She just highlighted the uh, pause for breath is how Everett Fox translated it. Um, and uh, that's the purpose of both the, so the sixth, sixth day, seventh day, the seventh year is that the whole earth may pause for a breath. So now, back to this invocation of Mount Sinai. Two things are going on here, at least. And I see them literarily, because I've, one of my favorite ways of studying Torah is to look at it as a literary, a beautiful, an incredibly intricate literary construction. <coughs> Excuse me. So one thing that we can see going on is that with the invocation of Mount Sinai, here at the end of Leviticus, we are being told that a whole literary piece is being uh, shaped, concluded here, that begins with the standing at Mount Sinai, where God says to the people, if you follow these commandments, you will be a nation of priests and a holy people. And the Ten Commandments follow Mount Sinai. That's the first time we hear about Mount Sinai, when the mountain is quaking and fuming and smoking. And now all of a sudden, the, the, the authors, the shapers of this text, want us to hear Mount Sinai again. And so somehow, this idea of seven days, seven years, 49 years, where we let the earth rest, where we release debts, we release the earth, we release control and dominion. Even though in Genesis it says, at the end of the sixth day, see, I have given you all the species of the earth for your dominion. It says that. And then it says, what comes right after that at the sixth day? Shabbat. Yes, human beings, I get it. You, I put you on this earth, whoever, whoever we're talking about, we're observing that we domesticate, control, take dominion over. Um, that's what we do. Transform, transmute. Um, it's a, human beings are astonishing that way. 
if we do not then take the Sabbath to remember that we are not God. The earth belongs to me, says the Lord in our portion. You are but residents upon it. Therefore, it's absurd for you to consider that you might own the earth. Then, so there's an echo of the beginning of um, the Ten Commandments, of the uh, standing at Mount Sinai. But then there's another echo. And uh, Gwen, if you put up um, chapter 25 again, I want to show it to you. Thank you. That's amazing, Gwen. Thank you. Um, uh, I want to go down to um, which verse? Yeah, verse six and seven. So scroll down a little bit. Thanks. So during the sabbatical year, the yield of the land, whatever it produces, is for you for eating. For you, for your servants and handmaid, for your hired hands and your settlers, um, uh, residents who, uh, uh, strangers who sojourn with you, and for your domestic animal and the wild beast that is in your land. It's all everybody's. So Rabbi Seidenberg points out, um, and he's not the first one to notice this, that this is an echo of the Garden of Eden. That this sabbatical idea is supposed to be a taste of what the world was like before we had to work by the sweat of our brow, before we were fighting for our survival, before in this in this primordial time, this memory that we all have, uh, it's not exactly a memory, it's like an, unless it is a memory of, of, of being in the womb, who knows? Um, but this, this human capacity to picture a world that's completely harmonious. So the sabbatical year, is supposed to be a taste, a remembrance, a reminder of a world that's in harmony. Jonathan, Wendy had a question. Yes, Wendy. Making me think of when the Jews had left Egypt and they were wandering through the desert and God had promised to send manna and that there would be enough to eat every day. People didn't have to hoard anything. They didn't have to collect an extra day's worth. It would be there. Mm -hmm. And this reminds me of that too. If they're not taking care of the land themselves for the produce, that God is almost saying, "If you just have faith and I will provide for you. Right. Thank you. We do not have a lot of evidence about the sabbatical year being strictly um, uh, fulfilled 
in ancient Israel. We know it was fulfilled to a certain degree, and it is still today in Israel. During a sabbatical year, the next one I think will be in 2021. Yeah, um, it's, it's next year. Yeah, the next sabbatical is next year. Um, uh, there's This is a whole other class that we've looked at before, but uh, the, the main thing is that uh, the sabbatical year was reinstated um, in the, uh, oh, over a hundred years ago as the Zionists <clears throat> started farming again in the land of Israel. They said, well, here we are in the land. It says we're supposed to let the land rest. How are we going to do that? Um, that's a whole other a fascinating subject. But um, I think this elegant description of seven cycles of seven, um, to whatever extent it was actually um, instituted, and we have evidence that it was instituted to a large degree, is also there to, to um, uh, teach us to trust. That's right. To um, plan ahead, make sure you have good stores, but to trust and to release and to let go. And we've been talking about that a lot in different, uh, different spiritual contexts, that the whole Torah may be um, um, uh, teaching us what it means to live live with trust and faith rather than with hoarding and um, uh, um, selfishness. Um, so in the Garden of Eden, the wild beasts coexist with the humans in the garden. N nothing is actually domesticated and nothing belongs to anybody. And after the expulsion from the garden, the humans go out and have to earn their bread by the sweat of their brow. And, uh, and by the time of Noah, we remember that it says the land, the earth, here, I'll go back to that passage. You don't have to put this up, Gwen. I'll just, I'll just read it to everybody. Um, Cause I'm going to jump around a bit. Um, as we become introduced to Noah, The earth, the arets, the land had become filled with violence. Um, and uh, God saw that the earth, the land had become corrupted uh, and destroyed because all um, uh, the human beings were, were acting destructively on the, on the land, ha'aretz. And so God says, this isn't working. I'm wiping the humans out. I'm starting over. Um, uh, everything's out of balance. Humans have corrupted and desecrated and abused and exploited and filled the earth with violence. That's it. And so, as you know, God brings the flood. And at the end of the flood, God reconsiders and says, never again will I bring doom upon the entire earth on account of what people do. Even though the human mind inclines towards evil from youth and onward. Rather, I will not destroy all living beings as I have just done. 
as long as the world exists, planting and harvesting, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and, day and night will not cease. Lo yishbotu. But then God says, look, I'm going to establish a covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living being in your care, the birds, the beasts, and all the land animals in your care, all who have gone out from the ark, all earth's animals, I am establishing my covenant with you. Never again shall all life be destroyed by the flood. I will never do this again. And God said, here is the sign I'm giving you of the covenant between you and me and every living being with you. I have placed my rainbow in the cloud. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I will remember my covenant when I see the rainbow between me and you and all living creatures and never again destroy. I will remember the everlasting covenant between me and all living beings, all that live upon the earth. That's called the rainbow covenant. So a covenant is a sacred contract, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a treaty, it's a bond of word. In the Torah, there's the covenant with the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, but way before that, there's the covenant of the rainbow, which God makes with every living creature. Even though human beings have the capacity to destroy the earth, God is not going to wreak vengeance on humanity. God, is, God has made a promise. The creator has made a covenant with all living creatures. That, so I hear in um, the sabbatical description in our portion, the remembrance of the covenant at Mount Sinai, which is a covenant between God and the children of Israel to create a land-based society in which a regular system of, of um, of redistribution of resources, of letting go of control, of making sure that uh, we remember our place in the symphony of creation. That is the covenant I'm making with the children of Israel. But there's also an echo when God says, and in this sabbatical year, you and your everyone who, who works under you and your animals and the undomesticated animals, will all be living in harmony, drawing nourishment for the earth, and you are not going to control that that year, is an echo of the covenant of the rainbow as well. I don't know how articulate I'm being today, because these are giant thoughts, but I do want to say that by observing these covenants, we situate ourselves every seventh day and every seventh year in our complex system of creation. Um, and 
we have a mechanism in Judaism to remember that. Let me read a few comments and then I have one more thing I wanna show you. So Blaise said, we, and we do not own the land or really anything else. Everything is on loan. All our possessions, our bodies, our lives. We need to care for everything. The Sabbath is good time for this, that we have been entrusted with. We are stewards of the land and all it has provided. Many of our possessions began with the fruit of the land in one way or another. Even the things that seem like inanimate objects, if traced to origins, may become the land. Even those people who made the objects. We are a community on loan. Everyone is on loan. We can take a Sabbath each moment as we become aware of breath and presence in how we relate to our interconnectedness and each other. Seven minutes of breathing a few times a day. Well, we are always breathing, but seven minutes of awareness of breath, I mean. That's a very beautiful place, thank you. Humility. Ellen said, hidden remembrance beginning to return of when we were in Gan Eden and we all had oneness consciousness. That's what I was trying to say. The humans may need to be destroyed, but I am separating out all the rest of my creation, the land herself, animals, insects, rivers, all will be saved. And so, comes the big thought that we can't avoid. So could COVID-19 be a way, says Bonnie, to get rid of the harmful, evil humans without destroying the other creatures and actually giving the earth a chance to recuperate? So I avoid um, grand statements about the purpose, of God's purpose. <laughs> However, I can apply the lessons of Torah to spec to observing how a world out of balance might try to spit us out. Right? The, and, and I want to say that the earth is going to survive. Even if human species, God forbid, keeps doing whatever it does that leads to the, to the destruction, desecration of the earth and of our species. But yes, look what the rest the earth is getting during this virus epidemic. It's rather remarkable. It's not a solution to the environmental problem. I was reading a bunch of articles about this this morning. There are negative effects as well as positive effects to environmental degradation, all kinds of things. And yet, I want to link our Torah portion to clear skies all over the world right now because we're ceasing. You know, it takes bad, it takes, humans are like that. Uh, Rabbi Sachs was talking about that in his column today. We respond best to bad news. <laughs> we, that's when we jump into action. And so bad news has caused us to become aware of the need for the earth to rest. Will it be sustainable? What's gonna happen? None of us know, but the awareness, we're resting and the earth can take a breath. No question about it. Joshua says, clearly we have collectively fallen out of harmony with these ideals. 
But are we not experiencing a sort of involuntary sabbatical due to the global shutdown? Could this be part of God's will, as it were? Perhaps it is hazardous to try to literally interpret God's will in this way, but worth pondering. I'm right with you, Joshua. I, I guess I said that before I read your comment. Um, we are experiencing an involuntary sabbatical. And regardless of its cosmic purpose, I do want to alert us to the link between our Torah portion and the involuntary sabbatical that uh, um, uh, has resulted from the global shutdown. And Ellen said, if humans don't live responsibly on my land and follow the Yovel, the Jubilee, letting go of ownership and supporting all life, then, and then comes the next chapter in the Kukotai, then the earth will reject you and you will live debased, terrified. The sound of a wind-driven leaf will put you to flight, it says. And Roni says, I believe it is definitely the disintegration of the natural habitats that has caused coronavirus spread to humanity. There's a lot of evidence for that, that indeed this disease is, is a traceable result of our inability to live in a balanced, harmonious way with our global habitat. Again, I, I shy away from making, therefore God is doing this to us, because please, I don't, I don't know. Uh, what I can affirm is that we have a, we all have a sense of the imbalance of uh, human civilization today. We have a sense of it. We observe its results in terms of climate degradation and in terms of human inequalities. And we have a message from our indigenous um, our indigenous tradition, ours, from the land of Canaan, 2,500, 3,000 years ago, along with all the other indigenous speakers who have risen up to remind us that we are, that our idea of land ownership, which comes really from, I guess, English common law, um, this idea that that what makes for, um, and I'm, I'm speaking out of nowhere right now, this is like, I didn't research this, that what makes for our um, legal system is property law versus a different kind of understanding of justice that's, that's based on a different relationship to land. And that it leads me to say, and then I'll get Joshua's comment, it leads me to say that in verse 10, of our chapter, it says, and you shall proclaim dror, release, in this sabbatical year for all the inhabitants of the earth. Um, that line of the land, that line is on the Liberty Bell. Proclaim liberty throughout the land for all its inhabitants thereof. 
That's what's on the Liberty Bell. The question is, for me, the question right now is what is liberty? What are we at liberty to do? And we're watching in our nation an unbelievably warped understanding of freedom of an individual as though their actions had no consequences for the larger ecosystems of relationships and earth that they live in. This is an utterly warped understanding of liberty, even more so when you think of its origin in the Torah, when it comes from this portion that's about restoring balance in human society and in human relationship to nature and is completely, utterly embedded in our interdependence with everything. It's kind of staggering as I think about that, that that line then moves to the liberal and the idea of liberty becomes some idea of individual property rights that is utterly, utterly at odds with its original intent in the text. Let me read what Joshua said because it says, I've used the term involuntary sabbatical to describe my personal year of disease when I had to stop all regular work. The same principle could be at work in individual diseases. Mm -hmm. I was certainly out of harmony with my body's need for rest for years preceding my physical breakdown. Joshua, that's really critical, which can give me an opportunity to wrap up because I began by saying how the book of Levitic Leviticus, which we end today, considers the concept of holiness, which is, can also be described as integrity, on all nested levels of experience. The body, what makes for a holy body, one that is not breaking out in sores, you know, a body that has integrity and balance. What makes for a human community where fairness, compassion, and justice are pursued in a way that allows the community to function as an interdependent whole, and then extends to how we sanctify the passage of time so that we experience time in a way that has integrity and rhythm and balance. And then we move to this last act, which then harks us back to Mount Sinai and says, wrap it all up in living with the earth and all its creatures in a harmonious way where you are not where you are part of the sacred balance where you, of, of life rather than um, a, um, an inevitable and constant disruptor of it. Because humans are inevitably constantly disrupting. That's what we are as species. But if we can't use our God-given awareness to understand how to enact that while still uh, remembering our interconnection to all, we will lose the integrity of the earth and the cosmos and the environment in which we live, and it will reject us. Thanks for letting me share all that. I hope, uh, um, I hope you found it worthwhile. And next week we go on to the book of Numbers. And we'll see what reflecting on 
the mirror of that book has to teach us for our moment.